This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted to be here with you today after a two-week hiatus, during which time I traveled the Middle East with my husband, and I will talk about that a little bit. Coming up later in today's episode, I am going to be telling a story, and I will give you fair warning that it is not a story about a cat. There are no cats. There are no animals in this story whatsoever. Um, but I will tell you that it is this, it is the story of the, it is the greatest story I have ever heard or probably will ever hear because I heard the story 30 years ago and it has still not been topped. It is the story of the greatest, the single greatest thing I have ever seen. It is a life-changingly amazing, amazing story. So even though it is not about cats, I encourage you to stick around for it. That's going to be later in today's episode. Uh, but first, yeah, I, I am back from my trip with my husband, Lawrence, to Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. Um, Lawrence just turned 60, which is so hard to believe that I am old enough to have a 60-year-old husband. Also, I guess that Lawrence is 60. Um, and when I asked Lawrence, oh, you know, like a year ago, basically, um, what he wanted to do for his 60th birthday, he said that he wanted to go to Egypt. And I did not want to go to Egypt without also going to Israel. And of course, Jordan and Petra, which is another destination that had always been on my bucket list, um, is right there. Israel is between Egypt and Jordan. And so that was how it all evolved. And we worked with a travel agency because the the logistics of it would have just been way too much for me. It was an incredible trip. We we saw some of, of the most incredible things that there are to see in this world. Um, you know, and things like, like you find yourself standing in front of the pyramids or the Sphinx and having just seen so many thousands of, of images, photographs, film depictions, uh, both real and simulated. But they, they've just loomed so large. You've never, you can't remember a time before you saw them before you knew what they looked like. And so to be standing there and and seeing them in person is is a very sort of surreal experience, at least at first. Um, going into the Great Pyramid, by the way, if you want to, and they allow you to go into the burial chamber, which is in the middle of the Great Pyramid, but it is physically taxing to get there. So if it is something you are considering doing, um, I, I would encourage you to do it sooner rather than later, because every, every, and I say this as someone like, as my husband likes to say, plowing deeper into my fifties every day. Uh, but, but truly every day that goes by when, when your joints are a little stiffer and getting around is a little bit harder than it used to be. It, it, time is not your friend when it comes to visiting the pyramids. There were some older people there, uh, but it was, my legs were, were talking to me for three days. Um, 
Because in order to get into the burial chamber, you have to do basically like a 200-yard uphill squat walk um, through a very a, a passage so narrow that you cannot stand. So you do have to walk in a squat. Um, and, and it goes it, – it's all uphill. And it is – it is difficult to do. And my, my thighs were singing for a couple of days afterwards, but at least I felt like I got a good workout. And yeah, you know, I, I don't want to talk, I, I guess, too much about the the sort of vagaries, the, the generalities of the, the trip. I am going to write um, some things and post some pictures for my Patreon community. And so those of you who are a part of it, I encourage you to, to take a look for that later on. And I'll you know, just write up some more first person stuff and some pictures that I've not yet shared on social media. And I'm looking forward to doing that. But of course, what, what is most pertinent, right, to, to this show and to what brings us together as a community, me and, and those of you listening to me, is our shared love of animals and our concern for animal rescue. And, uh, you know, you've probably heard some things about the Middle East being a, a tough region for animals. And and I by the way, I'm I'm not even an expert in the countries that I visited and certainly not in the entirety of the Middle East. I can only speak to what I saw during the brief time that I was in each of these countries. Um but it it is true. Um and Egypt in particular, but but Egypt, Jordan and Israel also are difficult places to be in some senses if you are an animal lover. Uh, Cairo was especially tough. Cairo was the first city that we visited. It was the first place on our trip. And I'm actually glad that it was because it's definitely the place that I enjoyed the least. And again, I, I was there for three days, so I cannot claim to be any kind of an expert on Cairo. And at one point, we did visit a bookstore that I very badly wanted to visit. It's called Diwan, D-I-W-A-N. And it is on a, a charming street called 26th of July Corridor. And I had read a book written by the woman who founded this bookstore 20 years ago in the face of, of truly just improbable odds and, and incredible difficulties. Uh, really, everything from governmental bureaucracy to being a woman trying to start a business in this particular part of the world to having to deal with with things like all of the entrenched poverty and illiteracy in Cairo, which makes a bookstore a particularly difficult kind of a business. And it's a bookstore that sells books in Arabic, but also in English. And I, I spent a, a delightful hour there. Um, but honestly, when, when I was not looking at, at the pyramids, so it, it, it Cairo, I, I found Cairo to be a very difficult place to be emotionally for me. Um, and let me just say, first of all, you, you have never seen so many stray dogs and cats. So many, so many puppies, so many puppies. Um, it is really, you know, I, I did not see anything horrible. Um, I did see a lot, and especially with the dogs, it's, it's so sad when you, when you see them and they're, they're so skinny. And just not in great shape. And, and there is so much sadness and fear in their eyes. And you know that fear is it can only be there because people are not kind to them. It is. And, and so I was walking around in, with this constant fear that I was going to see something horrible that I could not unsee. Um, instead, I saw a lot of things that were sad, but not horrible, at least. 
Um, but you know, it's it's at least for me, it was not only difficult because of the animals. It it Cairo is a very poor city. Um, and again, I I cannot. I, I was there for three days, so I cannot claim. I'm I'm sure. I have no doubt. I I know to a certainty, in fact, that there's so much more to Cairo than what I saw. But what I saw. Um, reminded me a lot of those of you who may have seen pictures of this or or have seen it in person. Um, it reminded me a lot of what the Bronx looked like in the 1970s or or the Lower East Side of New York in the 1980s. In that there were a lot of like demolished or partially demolished buildings, um, you know, just heaps and heaps of rubble or buildings that were half rubble, half building, clearly unoccupied, and and they were. There, there were as many of them as there were tenement buildings in which people lived, and and these were also even the ones that were clearly inhabited were were very poor, um, and and sort of not stru- looking and and didn't look very structurally sound, um, which is a particular concern in light of what has happened recently in Turkey. Right, we we know what happens in an earthquake part- prone part of the world where things are not built to earthquake standards, let's say. I, I do not know that that is the case, that the buildings, the occupied buildings that I saw in Cairo are not built to code. But it does not overall look like the kind of a city with rigorous construction codes. A- again, I may very well be speaking about, I, I know I'm speaking about things about which I know very little. I'm only speaking to what I saw as, a, as an observer. But I, I saw you know, also a lot of, of very poor people. And, and I understand, by the way, that where there is poverty, there is animal neglect for the simple reason that people who are having a difficult time taking care of themselves and their children do not have really anything left over to worry about animals. And and so I do understand that. I do not want to seem like I'm giving, trying to create the impression that that Cairo is a uniquely cruel city for for, or that the people in Cairo are uniquely cruel people. I don't think that I think it's a city where life is difficult for a lot of people. I saw a lot of panhandlers, a lot of very, very old people um, begging. I, you know, it's it's a trip in which I lost weight um, because I I, it is not an exaggeration to say that every meal that I had, I I shared with as many animals as I could. You know, I, I ate the vegetables and the falafel. And really throughout the region, oh my God, they never stopped giving you chicken and lamb and mixed grill. And um, so I, I distributed my meat to to those who I felt needed it more than I did. And I ate the vegetables and falafel and, and baba ganoush and all of which are foods that I enjoy. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm psyched to be back and not <laughs> have to eat them so much anymore. Um, I also, you know, I, I gave money. I... I at home, do not give a lot of money to panhandlers. And I've worked for nonprofit organizations that serve the homeless and who generally prefer that the people not give money to the homeless or to panhandlers and, and that they, you know, that there are better ways to assist people in need. Um, but I, I was in a foreign country and I, I don't know what the situation is, but I, I did give, um, to, to older, to elderly women, um, Basically, whenever I saw an, an an old woman panhandling, because I I have a personal belief that people who are not kind to old ladies do not go to heaven, and yeah, so it, it like I said, I was in this constant state of of dreading that I would see something 
more awful than I could stand to see. And that never happened. But even the the dread of that really took its toll on me. And we were only in Cairo for three days. And, and I was very relieved to go from there to Luxor, which is a, a much better looking place in general, much smaller uh, than Cairo. Very, very different. But, but you know, there were in, in Egypt and Jordan, just so many stray dogs and stray cats. And in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, I did not see any stray dogs, but I there there are lots and lots of feral cats on the streets. I almost got <laughs> Lawrence had to physically restrain me. We were having dinner one night, um, and I had just finished giving a hamburger to this very skinny, one-eyed black cat, um, who I'm sure you know you you won't have to think too hard about why this cat in particular touched my heart. Um and I had finished giving him the burger and, and he was starting to sniff around another table and a woman sitting at the table next to us kicked him and kicked him so that he jumped in front of a, a light rail car that was just passing by at that moment. Fortunately, the train did not hit the cat. Um, Lawrence literally, this is not an exaggeration, literally had to physically hold me back. Um, and I was screaming obscenities and, but, you know, of course, very, you know, tense Jerusalem is perhaps not a place. And, and I have no idea what ethnicity this woman was. Um, I, I was obviously American. She was local and, and that's all that I know. Um, it, it is not really a place to get into kind, you know, street brawls, um, arguably no places. And and so Lawrence did not have to work too hard to hold me back, but he did have to grab my arm because my first impulse was, I mean, I would never hit anybody, um, but was to go over and yell obscenities in her face. And instead I settled for yelling obscenities from some six feet away and then let Lawrence drag me off. Um, but that, that really really upset me. You know, it's, it's, there's the cruelty of neglect, which was in evidence throughout the, you know, throughout the countries that I was visiting. Um, but then there's there, you know, I, I have to say, and, and I guess this makes me lucky. It's been a long time since I've witnessed an actually cruel act against an animal. I, it was shocking to me to see someone kick a cat that way. Um, I'm I'm trying very hard to think of the last time, if ever, I've witnessed something like that in person, and I honestly don't think that I have, which I suppose means that I have lived a, a very sheltered life. And I know that those of you who work in rescue listening to this are like, oh, whatever. Somebody kicked a cat and didn't hurt him. I, I believe me, I got worse stories to tell you, and fair enough. I, I get it. Um but you know, the thing that always gets me is is I I genuinely don't understand people who are intentionally intentionally cruel to a helpless creature i i don't understand it it's 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 just as easy not to be it really is just as easy um so why why do it i you know i you get to a certain age and and you feel like you you understand most of the things you're ever going to understand you've met most of the different kinds of people you're ever going to meet you you have kind of a bead on on how things work and yet i there are still certain things that that are just always going to mystify me i don't understand i i don't understand why people have to be deliberately cruel um if you don't like someone or you don't like something then just go your own way anyway
This is, of course, getting into much larger philosophical issues. You know, it, it is interesting. I The only person who I felt we could have sort of engaged in a conversation about it with was our guide in Israel. Um, and we started to talk about it a little bit. And he said that the reason why there are so many street cats in Jerusalem is and throughout Israel is to control the rat population. And I have to say, you know, and, and I do not approve of this method of controlling the rat population. I don't think just allowing cats to to breed uncontrolled and then have no mechanisms in place for caring for them or caring for their health, I, I don't think is a good rodent control plan. I feel like there there has to be something better than that that we could come up with. But I will say that while you never, you really very rarely see stray cats on the streets of New York, you, we do have a lot of rats. Um, I did not see any rats in Jerusalem. And man, you come to visit New York, um, if you can get through an entire 24 hours without seeing a rat in Manhattan, then consider yourself very fortunate or or you're just not paying attention because, yeah, they're there, especially since the the pandemic. So again, I would still vote for trying to find other methods of controlling the rodent population than allowing cats to simply breed uncontrolled and and not be cared for. But I do understand um, that it would probably be very difficult to try to persuade a culture that is not used to seeing rats in the streets that they should, you know, enact spay and neuter programs, take better care of their cats, get them off the streets. Um, but that, But yes, you will probably start seeing some rats. I... Uh, it, it, that would probably require more of a cultural shift than anything else and and would probably be difficult to achieve because ugh, rats, scary to see in the streets. And I know that many of you have pet rats, but man, those are pet rats and, and they are not our New York City sewer and subway rats, which are just a, a whole different thing. And we have really, now we're really getting into a deeply unpleasant part of the conversation. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you guys about a couple of the rescue organizations in the Middle East that I've connected with and that I would encourage you to donate to if you have a little bit of spare change. You would be doing such an incredible thing. I I really it it, it it's it's awful. It, it really is awful to to see so much poverty and so many uncared for animals. And this is, you know, there, 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 there is no rescue organization or group of rescue organizations that can solve this problem, but we can salvage a few lives. And that I think is a tremendous blessing in a situation where there's so much need. And so I would encourage you again, any little bit, if, if you have an extra dollar, um, a dollar helps, especially when a hundred people each give $1. So if everybody listening to this would just give a dollar, we could do something really great for some of the animals. We, we could save some lives and that would be an amazing and miraculous thing. Um, then after I give you guys the, the name of the some rescue organizations, I have one more story to tell to set up, I guess, the larger story that I'm going to tell after the break. So... so so that's where all of this is going. I should apologize, by the way. You know, I am still incredibly jet lagged and my sleep schedule is off and I keep waking up at three o'clock in the morning. So it's around 430 now that I am recording this. I feel lucid. Um, 
But as I hear myself talk, it's occurring to me that maybe I'm not as lucid as I would like to think that I am. So thank you for bearing with me if I seem a little bit scattered and disjointed. Um, You are now going to hear the click of my computer mouse as I navigate over to these two pages that I've pulled up for you. So the first organization in Cairo that I want to share with you, um, this is a cat rescue primarily. Uh, They do occasionally rescue dogs, but they are primarily focused on cats. And this is the Adam Cats Sanctuary or Adam Sanctuary for Rescued Cats. You can find them on Facebook and their handle on Facebook is Adam's Cats Sanctuary. And Adam's is A-D-A-M-S. So like more than one Adam, basically. Um, No apostrophe. Adam's Cat Sanctuary. That's all one word. And again, you can find their Facebook page. You can find links to make donations. You can see pictures of Adam and of the cats that he is rescuing. And it's uh, it, it certainly does my heart a lot of good to see this um, after the thing, some of the things that I saw while I was there. And so I encourage you guys to check it out. And the other organization is the Zico. Animal Rescue Shelter, also based in Cairo. Zico is spelled Z as in zebra, I-K-O. And their handle on Facebook is Zico.rescue. So it's facebook.com slash Zico.rescue. And again, they rescue both cats and dogs. They have come to me very highly recommended from people who I trust on social media. Um, and Adam's Cat Rescue, I believe, actually has a, a United States, a U.S. 501c3 designation. They, they, you know, they, they work with an organization over here to have that status, which means that not only is there an, an auditing process, which gives some peace of mind in terms of, of the use of the money and, and making sure they do what they say they do, although I, I tend to believe people in these situations. Um, but also your donation, if you are in the United States and listening to this, is tax deductible. And it is certainly worth checking to see if you are not within the United States and within your own respective country, if this would also be tax deductible. Um, but again, you know, we're still talking about a small, relatively small amounts of money. I don't know how much of a difference ultimately it's going to make in your tax bill at the end of the year, but you would be doing an incredibly kind thing. And you know, and, and the thing that I always remind myself of is, is that it is not, we, we cannot save the world this way. But when you save a single life, it, it does mean the world to, to that one individual. You know, and, and the Talmud says that to save one life is to save the world entire. And I really do believe that. Um, and so we do what we can. And I encourage you guys to check out these organizations. Um, the the other near confront well it it wasn't a near confrontation it was a confrontation but I, and again when I say confrontation I really do want to emphasize that I, I do not get in physical fights although I really did want to kick the crap out of that woman who kicked the cat I can't lie like like there was really just this visceral part of me that like wanted to feel her skin rip beneath my fingernails for whatever that's worth so I I have the same violent I, I guess uh, tendencies as all other human beings. Um, but I, I'm never looking for a physical fight that that's just not my thing. Uh, but we, uh, on our last day in Jerusalem, we went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust museum. 
I don't know how many of, of you listening have have been to a Holocaust museum or or perhaps seen a traveling exhibition. If it's come through a museum in your city, a lot of times, um, ho- like the Holocaust Museum in D.C. loans out materials for exhibitions in other parts of the country. I, I of course, am Jewish. I It is really not an exaggeration to say that I was raised on the Holocaust, um, truly, from when I was very young. And I was about nine years old. I was in the fourth grade when my parents first gave me a book about the Holocaust. And and it did not, it was not a kid's book. It did not pull punches. I saw the pictures that, that I'm sure many of you have seen of, of the heaps of bodies and and the the living skeletons, you know what people looked like when the death camps were liberated. Pictures of of children being shot in in front of open graves. Um, it was definitely part of what they taught us about in Hebrew school, and and Holocaust survivors would come in and speak. Um, obviously, there are important reasons to start educating Jewish children young about the Holocaust. Um, you know the the I, I guess the arguments against showing kids some of the explicit materials that that we saw that we were shown and and that I saw, um, you know the two arguments would be one that it might be traumatic for the children and and the second argument would be that over time that it might there might be like almost the, the opposite effect that you become desensitized you you get so used to seeing certain things that it doesn't shock you or upset you or 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 sort of penetrate your skull the way it may have once done if you'd seen it less or at an older age or whatever the case may be. Um, as far as the, you know, it, it's too traumatic. I, I don't know. We live in an age of trigger warnings, I guess. Um, but I think kids are pretty resilient and you want to pay close attention and you, you want to keep an eye on the situation. And if some children seem like they really cannot handle it, that's something you deal with. But it, we all dealt with it. We all handled it. We, and I think it was important to make us understand at a young age that this isn't just one of these blah, blah, blah history things that gets talked about. Seeing the pictures makes it very visceral. Um, but I will say that over time, I mean, yes, it, it does become less viscerally upsetting to see the pictures. Um, it just does. But what for me has never lost its visceral impact is the survivor statements, is 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 listening to survivors tell their stories. And and that just wrecks me emotionally as much now as it ever did, uh, you know, going back to when I first started hearing these stories some 40 years ago. And Yad Vashem in Jerusalem is probably the most comprehensive Holocaust museum and memorial that I've ever seen, which of course makes sense. Um, and there, there were certainly, you know, there, there, there's a lot there. There was certainly no lack of recordings of, of first person survivor statements. And so it was a very emotional experience being there. And I was in a very emotional state. I had just finished listening to a, a particularly, um, compelling survivor statement. And there, you know, my husband and I were there by ourselves. Uh, but and of course, there are tour groups that come by and, and one there was one German tour group that was coming through and, and they were mixed ages. You know, some people were very old and there were some teenage girls who presumably were there with their parents. And, and uh, you know, I this is probably this is probably more a story about me being an intolerant person. Um, but but I but I, I ask of you to understand the context. And so 
as uh, you know, I just finished hearing this, listening to this this recording of this particularly emotional survivor statement, and I, I saw that this group of, of teenage girls, and they were just sitting there, and th- there were four of them, and three of them just looked incredibly bored. They were just sitting on stools, you know, where all of these statements were being presented, um, and one of them, and then there was a, there were three sitting there looking bored, and then a fourth who was asleep, and just did not seem to me like a place where anybody should be sleeping. Um, it, it just hit me on the wrong level. And again, you really have to understand that I, I was fresh from hearing th- this truly horrifying survivor story. And so I, I, I went up to this girl. I mean, I like I stalked over and I clapped right in her face and I said, wake up. This is your history, too. And uh, Lawrence, who was across the room, but heard my voice and and kind of came over, and I was already walking away. Um, I don't know. So, so I guess if nothing else, they they will have the story to tell about the crazy Jewish woman who yelled at them at, in in the Holocaust Museum. Did not seem to me like a place where somebody should be sleeping. Again, it, it just seemed particularly disrespectful in light of the story that I had just listened to. Um, the good news for you, however, as the person listening to me now, is that I have an amazing uh, story. It is a Holocaust story. It is not a cat story, but it is the single greatest story that I have ever heard or probably will ever hear. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen. It, it's the greatest story that I have to tell. And I am going to tell it to you now, again, with the advisory that there are no cats or animals of any kind in this story. But I do encourage you, this is a truly a life-changingly amazing story. So I encourage you to sit back and get comfortable for about 30 seconds or so while we take a break. And I will return shortly with more Curl Up With A Cat Tale. Thanks so much for sticking around. Um, I do want to add, by the way, that if my parents had caught 15-year-old me napping in a Holocaust museum, I'm truly afraid to think of what they would have done to me. Um, I I understand that the context is a little bit different, that this girl presumably was not Jewish, but nevertheless, um, that that would have been quite an ugly scene. Um, The story that I'm going to tell is is a Holocaust story, um, and I will... Lee kicked this off by saying that this is, like I said, the greatest thing I've ever seen. Um, and the, the greatest thing I've ever seen is an episode of the Montel Williams show. True story. <laughs> the greatest thing I've ever seen is an episode of the Montel Williams show. And I'm going to tell that story now. And I should say that I was never a fan of morning TV talk shows. Uh, but my senior year in college, I had an apartment off campus with a roommate, but we did not have cable television. Our parents uh, still deemed cable to be kind of a luxury item that that 
college students did not necessarily need to have. And so we had the three network channels and, you know, the two VHF, you know, UHF channels, whatever they were. Um, the point being that sometimes in the morning, if I didn't have a class until 11 o'clock and I didn't feel like reading and I had nothing to study, every so often I would find myself kind of trying to, to find something to watch in that wasteland after the the morning news shows end and, um, you know, before the soap operas come on. Um, I think I did watch soap operas sometimes in college too. But anyway, so this was an episode of the Montel Williams show that I happened to catch my senior year of college. It was, I believe, in November early November of 1992. If you want to go try look the, to look this up yourself and see if you can find it online, and I encourage you to do so. And here was the setup for the story. Um, apparently, a year prior to this episode that I was now watching, Montel Williams had, had done, you know, one of those like really gross kind of exploitative things where he brought together Holocaust deniers and Holocaust survivors to confront each other on the set of his show. Um, and while I, I will always rally for anything that gives a forum to Holocaust survivors to tell their stories, it, this still seemed sort of like an icky premise to me for a number of reasons, um, mostly because you're also then giving a forum to the Holocaust deniers, which is problematic in my view. But anyway, so there were Holocaust survivors and there was one man there. He was originally from Prague, now living in America. He was a Holocaust survivor and he told the kind of story that if you've heard a lot of of, of stories from survivors, you, you've heard a story like this. But basically, he and his family, his entire family, were shipped off to, to the death camps. Um, he witnessed both of his parents and his younger sister, his grandparents. He saw everyone in his family basically murdered in front of him, everyone except his younger brother. And his younger brother, he did not see die. They were separated in the camps, but he later heard from family, you know, acquaintances, mutual acquaintances, people who had known the family who had seen his younger brother die. And so he knew that his younger brother also had died. Um, later, after the camps were liberated, he was in a DP camp and he reconnected with a woman of his age who th their families had been friends in Prague before the Holocaust, and the two of them got married and moved to America and, and had children and, and grandchildren and built a life for themselves that was, by all measures, a successful life. And now they were old. You know, this was in 1992, and the war ended in 1945, so this was nearly 50 years later, and, and these were two elderly people. So this was the story that the man had told a year earlier on the, on the Montel Williams show. This was his story. A man from the Czech Republic, unrelated to the guy who was telling the story, he happened to be in America visiting relatives, and he happened to catch this episode of the Montel Williams show. And he thought to himself, you know, what's funny is this man looks exactly like my next door neighbor back in Prague. And not only that, he has the same last name as my next door neighbor back in Prague. Um, you, you may already be getting chills as, as you should be, because this is going in the right direction. So when, so the man finished his, his visit to his family, went back to the Czech Republic, um, at some point, a few days later, went knocking on his next door neighbor's door and, and said, forgive me for prying, but I'm, I am hoping you will tell me your story. And the man, the, the neighbor 
proceeded to tell the exact same story as the man on the Montel Williams show, except in his version of the story, it was an older brother who whose death he had not personally witnessed. He and his older brother were separated from each other, but he heard from from mutual acquaintances, people who had known the family, who had known both brothers, that his older brother had died. And the man who had just been visiting his family in the United States said to him, look, this is going to sound crazy, but I think maybe your brother is alive and living in the United States. So they reached out to the producers in the Montel Williams show, and apparently it took a while to be taken seriously and for the producers to, to realize that the that these weren't just a couple of kooks. And so they did the research and they they went through the records. They, you know, have a whole fact-finding team and they were able to ascertain that, in fact, these two men were brothers, that the man who happened to be visiting his family in the United States and thought that this guy on American television looked just like his next door neighbor in Prague was right. And the two men were, in fact, brothers, which in and of itself is just an astonishing thing. I mean, when you think it, I, I probably don't have to lay it all out for you. Just the number of of incredibly improbable things that would have to occur for that man to be watching that episode of that show at that time. So now the Montel Williams show calls the the American brother because obviously they want to reunite these brothers on the air. So they call and and they get the wife and and so now the wife. The, Amer- the, the wife of the American brother is, and who's in, she's an old, old woman. And, and she's telling the story. And she said, I, I didn't know what to do, how to tell my husband. He's an old man. He could have a heart attack. And he, uh, forgive my butchering of the accent, by the way, but I, I, you have to imagine, I mean, truly this, this old woman with this old world accent. And as soon as he came home that day, I, I burst into tears and I said, I have such wonderful news for you. And he said, if it's so wonderful, why are you crying? I have to stop crying myself. Um, but so she manages to to tell him. He did not, fortunately for all of us, have a heart attack upon hearing the news. And so now that the Montel Williams show gets involved again, they want to bring these two brothers together. They will fly the the, the brother from Prague, all expenses paid, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the only thing they ask is, is that they have their, their first time reunion on the set of the show. So we've now gotten to this part of the story and, and they stop for a commercial break. And, you know, after the break, we bring these two brothers together for the first time in more than 50 years. Um, I was openly sobbing at this point, as is the entire audience, like studio audience. Everybody is in tears. Um, I, I don't think I've ever waited more impatiently through a commercial break. Um, and of course, again, I, you know, I understand. I understand that that in a perfect world, what would have happened was they would have just brought these two men together and and let them have their reunion in their own way and on their own terms and not make them do it in front of, of everybody. Um, but I will tell you right now, as sure as I could not have changed that channel if if you had put a gun to my head and commanded me to do it. I I was thoroughly invested. And you know, so after the break, they they bring the brother from Prague out, and the first thing you can see is that he really does look exactly like his older brother. Um, they really do look so much alike. It it does not seem crazy that 
the man from Prague who had been watching it would think that he might be the brother of his next door neighbor because they really did look exactly alike. And he he comes out and and the American brother stands up and goes over to him. And they didn't even hug. They they put their hands on each other's faces and and just sat there with the tears rolling out of their eyes looking at each other's faces. I mean, it wasn't even a hug. I mean, you could tell they just, neither of them had ever thought they would be looking at this face again. And here it was 50 years, 50 years later. And, you know, from there, they they went and they sat down next to each other and, and Montel Williams, you know, interviewed them about their, their lives and what was going on. But But the whole time, I mean, they were sitting next to each other and they just kept touching each other's arms and hands like like they like they couldn't believe they could and how could you believe it i mean how do you even begin to make sense of something like that um but i kid you not when i say it was the most incredible thing i've ever seen it was the most incredible story um it was definitely something i i had to remind myself of the reason it's been in my mind this story so strongly the last few days is is upon leaving Yad Vashem. You know there there are so few good stories that that come out of something like this. Um, but this is one of those stories that 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 goes at least part of the way to restoring whatever sense of faith or hope you might have in the ultimate. You know that there is some some force for goodness in the universe, um, and. So I was I was glad to have it to to sort of mentally refer back to after leaving Yad Vashem. And and now I've given it to you as well. And again, I encourage you to um to see I don't I don't know, but you know, there's so much that's out there now between YouTube and, and just the vastness of of the internet. And I almost don't want to see it again. It it made such a forceful impression on me low these many years ago. Again, this was back in nineteen ninety-two. Um but if you can find it on your own, I encourage you to to look for it and do so. It is definitely something worth seeing. And on that note, that decidedly uncat-like, but still, um, you know, hopefully optimistic and and life affirming note, I am going to sign off for now. Uh, but I do look forward to seeing you all again next week for an all new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today.